to Orlando Baptist Church. My name is Pastor John. I'm the, typically, I'm the worship pastor, uh, discipleship pastor, so that's community groups and personal discipleship and our Bible study classes. Um, so if you need any help with any of those things, uh, that's on me. It's, it's amazing and awesome to be a part of such a talented team, like, you know, having your lead pastor be as good, if not better, of a worship leader than you. It is just, it's awesome that we can all kind of cover all basis. So Dustin, I'm super thankful for you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, get those out to 1 Timothy 4. Today we're going to be focusing on false teaching and how to defend ourselves against false teaching. Now, a good defense in every single area of life is incredibly necessary, especially when you think about false te- or d- defense in the realm of sports. Think about this. There's all sorts of those amazing games that you see on you know, ESPN 30 for 30 that are these just blowout games. They're enormous games with huge scores where these teams only have an offense, but they don't actually have any defense. Their defense is completely lacking. And so it's super fun to watch those games because what it ends up becoming is just a race to see who can score the most points. And they're so fun to watch. But typically, typically, those are not the teams that actually make it to the very end, they actually make it to something like the Super Bowl. In order to make it to the final game, in order to be the best team, you have to have a defense. If you wanna reach the finish line, you must have a good defense. Now the same is true if you're talking about something like war, right? If you think of an army that only goes on the offensive, if that's their only strategy, it's going to be over in a very short matter of time. The the aggressor, they're gonna fight and fight and fight and fight until ultimately they have nobody left. I like to play this game sometimes um, called Risk, and it's this, this game where you roll a dice, and I'm really bad at it because I don't like to sit around and play for four hours. I take my first turn and I roll and I go and I go and I go until all my guys are gone. So for me, it's just a you know, burnout hard and bright. That's not how the game is supposed to be played, but you need a good defense. You need a good defensive strategy. This is directly applicable in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. We face enemies from within and from outside. We face enemies that are both natural, enemies that are supernatural. And if we do not have any kind of defense against the false teachers of our day, we don't stand a chance to make it to the end. Now, I'm super thankful for this. I'm super thankful that you and I, if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who awakens to you and illuminates to you the word of God. He holds on to you. He teaches you, reminds you of all the words of Christ. But today we're talking about accepting our role, your role and my role, our our role of responsibility in defending ourselves against the sweet aroma, the tickling of the ears of false teachers. You know, the early church, it had a ton of false teachers. The false teachers in the early church, they were everywhere. It was was literally the, the kind of wild west for theology. Right, This new thing called Christianity burst onto the scene and all of a sudden there's a bunch of people saying, I know what Christianity is about and another person saying, I know what Christianity is about. But then you have Paul. He works against the the heretics. Heresy was sprouting up everywhere and, and a lot of false teachers, they were claiming really incredible things, really big things like God has given me a special revelation that he's given to nobody else. And so when you and I are reading our New Testament scriptures, we're reading a lot of times Paul's writing to combat 
this false teaching and to encourage people to live true, good, godly lives that are centered around the things that Christ has done for us. And so that's where we're entering today into our text. Paul has a friend, his name is Timothy. He was training him up. Timothy's probably in roughly his early 30s early to mid-30s, and Paul writes to him, warning him of the dangers of what is going on in this city called Ephesus. There's, there's idol worship happening everywhere. They were, they were known for this temple of Artemis. Paul knew the happenings of this city extremely well, and he sends Timothy into this dark place in the world to be a beacon of light in a city that is just covered, completely shrouded in darkness. Now, it's hard sometimes to do these standalone messages because I can't give you the whole context, but if you look at the book of 1 Timothy, a lot of it is written both to combat the false teachers and also to help people live godly lives, help people live lives where they're actually living out the truths that they've learned in the scripture. He's writing in 1 Timothy for those who say they believe in Jesus, but he's saying if you believe in Jesus, but there's never a change in your affection, there's never any real godliness, then it's likely that you were never part of the kingdom at all. Like when you experience Christ, there is something that's deeply changed in us. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we walk in pure, perfect holiness. It means that something is changed. And so I think this book that we're reading is really fitting for our day. So let's read this, um, and then let's spend some time in prayer. First Timothy 4, 1 through 10 He says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ, Jesus being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is savior of all people, especially those who believe. Let's pray. Lord God, our prayer is that you would do in us what we can't do in ourselves. Lord, that you'd help us in this. Help us to walk with you, to be aware that there are those who want to lead people astray. And I I pray that we would get a really good foundation in this so that we don't always have to be the people, you know, heresy hunting. God, help us have a solid biblical foundation. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. So the first thing we see, the the wolves really are out there in, in the scripture. They're out there for Paul, they're out there for us. For Paul, it's this term, wolves in sheep clothing. Right, for us, we hear that, but for, for Timothy, this was not a saying that he randomly heard from time to time. It was a reality that he had to live with every single day. Now, when I preach, I like to read the whole section of scripture so we can get it, and then I like to read the parts of it. So let's read this again, verse one and two. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. 
I like to talk about this a lot because I, I, I do a lot of online ministry and YouTube and stuff, and there's so many people out there who are just terrified of the later days. They're like, is this it, John? Are we in the final hours? And the answer is yes. Absolutely we are. We are in the later time. The answer is yes, we are living in the later times because every single day after Pentecost was the final days. And we know that this is true because Paul is warning Timothy here about false teachers, not of our day, but the false teachers of Timothy and Paul's day. But he says this, he says, what is the root of their teaching? What is the, what's the core of their teaching? What's the poison that's dripping from the lips of these false teachers? Its root is in demonic activity. Now, if you know me, <laughs> my wife will tell you this, I'm not the guy that's like, your car didn't start, the demons got you. <laughs> I, I don't, biblically I don't see that. But if you're like me, we can tend to ignore the supernatural things in scripture. And as the American Christian church, we, we sometimes forget, we, we forget that teaching of every age that is false teaching, that is not the, the biblical teaching of God is at its core demonic, right? We're, we're so quick to just dismiss supernatural things. We only focus on what we can see and what we can hear and what we can touch. But Paul is crystal clear in this passage that there is false teaching. And he says that the Holy Spirit expressly says that this false teaching that leads other people away, that leads other people to hell is at his core demonic activity. These teachers of Timothy's day, I think this is just the wildest thing. They seem like they bought into the lies of the enemy. They devoted themselves to the things of this world. So many times in the New Testament when you're reading about false teaching, it's guys who want to, make, to, to get rich really quick. They're what Matthew 13 would say are, are those who had some kind of godliness, some form of, of God's work in their lives, but ultimately the world and the love for riches got into their heart and it deceived them and carried them off until what the scripture says is their consciences were seared. Now I think this is scary. These guys started with some form of godliness but their consciences were seared. Like, I don't think they, they woke up suddenly one day and were like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna worship Satan, we're gonna preach a false gospel. I don't think that's how they got there. I don't think they randomly just woke up teaching the teachings of demons. I think it was a process, slow, step by step, not keeping watch on their hearts, not having a daily walk with the Lord. Maybe they had more important things to do in the morning than connecting with the Lord their God. And the scariest thing of all is this could be us, right? How many of us have woken up in the morning and just said, I, I just gotta get my day started. I, I gotta get going. I remember hearing about Luther. Luther, people would ask him, you know, you, you pray for like two hours in the morning. Like, don't you feel like you gotta get your stuff going? Like, don't you have to, you have to get life going and get stuff done? And he's like, well, if I spend time in prayer, everything in life goes better. And so it actually works against me if I don't pray because I don't get the right things done. You see, the conscience, it's seared over time. Little by little by little. But I love this fact that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a hope that keeps us from this kind of error. 
As believers in Jesus, we have the surgeon of surgeon who can help us identify those places in our hearts where we're starting to be deceived. And he will, if we submit ourselves to him, he will cut those things away through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This text gives us a clue of how we do that. He says they devote themselves to good teaching and good doctrine. So there's hope for you. And there's hope for me in this battle that if we are submitted to God, he can and he will keep us from foolishness. The problem that I encounter though, and I'm sure you do, is it's hard sometimes to know when we're living in foolishness. It's hard sometimes to spot the foolishness. One of the things I find the most intriguing about this, this message of the false teachers, as I said, they weren't out there going, let's go worship Satan. No. This is crazy, wrap your minds around this. They weren't saying go worship Satan, they said go and be a good person. Isn't that crazy that that's the teaching of the the demons? They don't want you to to worship Satan, they want you to not love Jesus, okay? They want to tell you go, be a good person, go to church, love your your neighbor, but, but don't love Jesus. It's wild that this is the message that we see that's satanic here, it's so much more insidious, he didn't want them to go and do a bunch of awful things, he just wanted them to live a life without Christ, with a false sense of holiness. We can read it here, they were living this holier than thou kind of theology. Let's look at it, verse three through five, he says, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from fools, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. And so they're teaching that they are the most holy, that those who are the most holy should stay away from marriage, that they should stay single all of their lives because the body's bad, sexuality is bad, but spirituality is good. And it's this term that I like, it makes you sound way smarter than you are. It's this term platonic dualism. It's rooted in the the teachings of Plato, the philosopher, and it's completely antithetical to what God sets up in the scriptures, right? Plato believed that the physical world was bad because it was corrupt, but the spiritual world is good. And this this type of teaching, this, this Platonic teaching was all over the ancient world, but we're seeing it rear its head over and over here in our day and age, but I think for for Christians, right, if you're looking at what kind of false teaching Christians buy into, it's kind of in-house, not our house, thankfully, but in the world of American Christianity, there's kind of two main false teachings that people buy into. You see, there's there's just millions of of, of faulty world views, but if you're talking specifically of people who love Jesus, the two kinds that we see are the aesthetic and the accommodator the ascetic and the accommodator. So we're gonna pull those two things apart. First, let's talk about the ascetic. These teachers that Paul is warning Timothy about, they were definitely on that line of being the ascetic, right? They were the extremist. And so they taught people to stay away from things, stay away from marriage, stay away from certain foods, stay away from certain drinks. The problem that Paul is noticing is that they're actually teaching holiness found in asceticism. If you want to know the definition of that, it's severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. It's what the Pharisees did, right? 
Read the scriptures. That's what the Pharisees did over and over and over. They, they promoted this idea that holiness was purely external. And Jesus had a lot to say about holiness that is purely external. Look at Matthew 23, 25 through 28. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. When the Son of God has to say woe to you, you know you screwed up. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, holiness is not purely external. It's not purely external. It it doesn't begin on the outside. It begins with a transformed, a regenerated heart. And it is only the work of Christ in our lives and, and the resurrection that we see through Christ's life and the sanctification that we see from the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that we grow holy. Merely external acts of righteousness leads to a puffed up sense of self. And what does the Bible say that God does to the proud? He opposes the proud. The ascetic, it's, it's bad because eventually if you push everything out that resembles the world, you will have no one left to evangelize to. Right? The ascetic doesn't want to be around sinners. They don't want to be in the world but not of the world. They want to be as far away from all of that filth because they are so much holier. But the problem is worldly people engage in worldly things. That's why we are told be in the world but not of the world. There's this really famous ascetic, which I think might go down as one of the dumbest people in history. He, he was a Christian. He, he swore that he was so holy. And so what he did, for 37 years, he climbed up on top of a pole one day, and for 37 years, he stayed on top of that pole, looking down at everybody else, not doing anything. And Christians praised him because he was such a saint. Oh my gosh, you're so holy. You don't need anything of the world. You just sit up there on your pole. I'm like, are you kidding me? What a moron. You you have actually wasted your life. You could have gotten so much more done in your 37 years for the kingdom of God. And that's, when when I read a story like that, I don't believe that that person, maybe, but I don't think they get to heaven and, and the Lord goes, well done, good and faithful servant. You sat up on your pole for 37 years. High five. Asceticism... It's dangerous because it looks like godliness externally and, and when it does, sometimes there's no real internal transformation of the heart. So that's the first big major thing we need to, to see is the false teaching of our age. The second one is just as dangerous. The problem is it looks more loving a lot of times. It's called the accommodator. It can sometimes come off as a, a universalist. Sometimes it's a message that, that just feels so good but it's just so watered down that we don't have any of the real pungency or power in the Christian message. Realize this. The gospel has to be offensive at some level. The message that you are not enough to save yourself, that you have sinned against a holy God, that we have no ability to rescue ourselves, that is an offensive 
message. And as soon as the, the gospel becomes this easy, lighthearted, laughable thing where God just wants to give you what you want, you lose that message. I'm so thankful. Dustin preached a message maybe three or four months ago about patriotism and how we encounter the world. And boy, howdy, it stepped on some toes. And I was thankful for it. Stepped on my toes. And I was thankful for it. See, for the good news to actually be good, the bad news must also be understood. That we had the wrath of God on us. Without the wretchedness of sin and the hopelessness of the sinner, there is no glory for Christ to be gained. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he makes kind of a similar warning about what to do with that kind of accommodator style of preaching. He says this in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into silly myths. Does that not sound like our day? The cool thing that we should take heart in is that's not, when I say does that not sound like our day, that's every age of humanity, right? That, that's not unique just to us. That's how humanity has always been. People have always loved, who doesn't like being told like, hey, you look great. I know I didn't sleep last night. No, I don't look great. But the good news, the true news must at some level be offensive. Here's just a general rule for you. If you are never offended by a preacher, like you never are offended him, you're only encouraged, you, you probably are listening to somebody who's tickling your ear, right? If you're, obviously we're not, but if anybody's listening online to a, a preacher who never offends them, you are probably listening to a false teacher because they're not giving you the real meat that you need. They're not, not, not knocking up against your humanity and say you need to be more like Christ, and I'm not saying be overly offensive. How many of us are, are listening to this message like, yeah, this gives me all the right to go and you know, punch my neighbor in the mouth with my holiness. That's not what we're doing. I just don't want us to shrink back. I don't want us to think it's so loving that we lose all of the power of the gospel. If you have a preacher who is tickling your ears and they're saying God is all about you, your health, your wealth, your happiness, I'm telling you, listen to me, a God who is man-centered is not a God that wants you to be truly happy, but a God that is God-centered, like, like the one that we see in the Bible, that we read about his glory, his mission, his rescue plan, that is a God that is worth following. And those things, those God-centered things, those were designed, you were designed to be happy in the glory of God. God loves you. God does think you're important. He would not die for somebody he did not love and think was important. But we have to know this about the scriptures. This is a story about the glorification of God and how he rescued us. And that is right and that it's good. It's good that God wants to glorify himself because he is truly the most glorious being in existence. Now what's insidious about these false teachers that we read about they were preaching a partial truth. 
right? We know that lies are really insidious. We know that many people are led astray when they're preaching things that resemble the real truth while putting in part of a lie, when it appears to be maybe the blessing of the sheep, but it turns out to be the curse of the wolf. So how did Paul answer asceticism? How did he answer accommodating preaching? He rooted his response always in God. He said, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Verse five, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He reminds Timothy here. He brings him back to Genesis. He says, God created everything good at creation. He created all things good and it wasn't until mankind stepped in and sinned that corruption and sin entered the world. Paul, when speaking to the false teachers, he uses his understanding of the Bible to contradict their teaching. But if you wanna do that in your life, you have to immerse yourselves in the teaching of the scriptures. Verse six, it says this. He's like, what? This, verse six is, what is a good servant of Jesus? They're, they're trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine. So how do we protect ourselves against false teachers, against heresy of our day? Because bad teachers, like I've said, have always existed throughout all of time. What, has God, what have God's people done throughout all of time to combat false teaching and false or heresies? What have they done? They've immersed themselves in the word of God and they've trained themselves for godliness. Verse seven through 10, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Paul here says that focusing on things that are not explicitly, explicitly clear in the scriptures those things can be set aside. Those don't have to be hills that we're willing to die on. Like we don't really even need to focus on them because they're not the things that actually matter most deeply to the heart of God. Things like loving others and loving the Lord and making disciples. He says instead of wasting our time on those things that aren't crystal clear in the scripture, those things that have really no impact on the way that we should live out our lives and the implications of the gospel. He says, you can just set those things aside. Now, as I said earlier, the book of 1 Timothy, it's all about gospel impact in our lives, right? Gospel impact in the lives of those who are saved. And one major impact that we experience is being freed to begin this journey. It is a journey of training ourselves for godliness, now, the people of Ephesus, they, they, they had been acquainted with training the body, right? I think it's so funny when people say, like, the only reason you need to work out is because you don't work as hard as people used to work back then. Have you read the Bible? It's 2,000 years old. It talks about bodily training. He says that they trained their bodies. They spent time, these, these people, they spent time making sure that their bodies were in tip-top shape. And Paul even says, like, this is not a bad thing. This is a, a good thing. People should strive to have healthy bodies. I should try to strive to have a much healthier body. But he says that fitness is not a thing that should be an end in itself. 
Fitness is not something that you should live for. It's, it's, it's important for the here and now, but it doesn't last ultimately into in eternity. It's temporary. But there's things that you and I as believers, we can focus on things like godliness, training ourselves in godliness that last into eternity. He tells Timothy to train himself in godliness and that that kind of training is actually going to be an antidote to the false teachers having an effect on him and his listeners. The funny thing about training, no matter what, whatever you're training in, it's going to be difficult. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna require a lot of you. And if it's not difficult, you're probably doing it wrong. If it's not difficult, you probably are not having a real effect on your life. If you're talking about training your body for, for health, there's a process. You have to go through the stress, recovery, and adaptation cycle. It's got to be difficult. If it's not stressful, you are not growing. The stress is caused by lifting heavy weights or cardio. The recovery is, is helped by good sleep, which I don't know anything about, and good nutrition, which I also don't know anything about. <laughs> And if you put those things together, your body adapts and it becomes stronger. I, I've experienced this in life. I, I, I love lifting really heavy weights and I remember I would squat a certain amount of weight and it would literally feel like it was just gonna crush me. Like, all right, this is it, this is, I'm dead. But then like months later, you come back to it and that weight that was once really, really difficult, all of a sudden, doesn't feel that hard. That's because I, I trained with consistency. I probably should start that again. <laughs> But the same thing is true with godliness. It's not easy. It is unnatural for us. It's really difficult to see the fruit in our spirit of, uh, of our walk with the Lord. And if you're walking with God and it feels difficult, like you wake up in the morning and you're reading your Bible and you're not getting anything out of it, a lot of times pastors will say, well, you just need to spend more time in your Bible. It's not bad advice. But for somebody who's just starting, who just became a believer, try 10 minutes. But try it with consistency. And then next week, try 11 minutes. Like, grow, train yourself for godliness over time. Sometimes you have to start with milk in order to move to meat. But if you expect to grow in godliness without any effort at all on your part, let that dream just fade away. That is, that is a, a, a fantasy that we have come up with. Growing in sanctification, it's tough. It's so tough, in fact, that it's, for it to have any lasting impact, it takes the Holy Spirit infusing your effort with his lasting effect on your life. That as we grow in true godliness, it's wonderful because we actually do grow, right? That's the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. We do, in fact, grow so much so that we can quickly see the falsehoods of false teachers in our day. And the more that you grow in that, that godliness, that holiness, the happier that you become because you appreciate more and more the grace that God has had on you. And so there's a couple areas you could focus on. If you want to grow in godliness, if you want to train yourself for godliness, there's a couple of things that you could do. Obviously, this is a massive list that we could talk about, but I want to stay within the text that we have in front of us today. Yes, the, 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 the text we're reading right now, it's written to a guy named Timothy by a guy named Paul, but we can pull principles out of this text and apply them to our lives. So the first thing that we need to do, and the one that I am always adamant about when I preach because I need it preached to my own heart is to be immersed in the word of God. 
As Paul said earlier in, in this chapter in verse six, he says that we should train ourselves by being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. The words of the faith and of good doctrine, meaning that at some level, not at every level, but at some level, it is on us to grow in our knowledge of the faith. It's a tragedy, I think, for, for so many believers that their faith now exists on this ghost of a, a past faith this phantom of a past faith, when once your study was so much more vibrant and your passion for the Lord, was, it glowed so much hotter. Christian, those fires are available to you today, but we have to immerse ourselves in the things of God in order to feel their warmth. Let me tell you this, I am as distracted as anybody else in this room. I feel the draw of social media as much as anybody else in this room, and it's shameful when I can look at my YouTube analytics and say, wow, I spent that much time on YouTube watching stupid videos and I think to my spiritual life and I go, oh, I only spent this much time with the Lord this week. If you're in that place, you're not alone. I'm a sinner too. But we have to immerse ourselves in the word of God if we want to grow in this. Some people think that this is only for pastors, for people who've gone to seminary. Trust me, you do not need to go to seminary to immerse yourself in good doctrine and good teaching. A, a great example of this is a guy named Henrik Bitzer. Henrik Bitzer, he was uh, trained in education. He was a banker of all things, but he loved learning Greek and Hebrew and he loved teaching people Greek and Hebrew. And he said, the more that I learned and the more that I studied and the more that I immersed myself in the things of God, the more glorious and the more beautiful God became to me. He said, that's not wasted time. The more that I understood about the things of the Lord, the greater I thought that he was. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to go learn Greek and Hebrew. I dropped out of seminary, so I didn't learn that stuff. <laughs> but we must immerse ourselves in the scriptures. We have to immerse ourselves in good books that teach good doctrine. And the more that we learn about the Lord, the more that that edifies our soul. So immersing yourselves in the scripture, it is so incredibly important. Learning scripture, that's a way that we can defend ourselves against Satan. It's a way that we can defend ourselves against the, the, the schemes and the attack that Satan has on, his, on, on God's people. Right, we, we see this in the Bible. We see this when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's talking to Satan. And the, the way that he pushes back the attack is he uses scripture over and over and over to answer Satan. We see it again in the, in the Pauline epistles. In, in Ephesians, he gives us this, this list, and all the list is defensive. Everything is defensive, defensive, defensive. And then he gets to the word of God, and it's the only offensive weapon against Satan. Let's read it, Ephesians 10, or sorry, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you could extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, and here it is, 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We have to immerse ourselves in God's word. If you want to stand strong against Satan, I wish, I wish it, I mean, this is really simple, right? I wish there was another way or, or, or anything like that, but you must immerse yourself in the word of God if you want to stand against the scheme of the enemy. Parents, if you want to stand against the scheme of the enemy for your kids, you got to stand on the word of God. Dads, if you want to raise up young men who love their wives like Christ loved the church, you've got to raise them on the word of God. If you want to edify your friends, you must build them up by standing on the word of God. If you want to go against the, the attacks and the schemes of the devil and his false teaching, you must immerse yourself in the word of God. As we said before, these false teachers, they're trying to tickle your ears. They're trying to tell you what you want to hear, make everything so palatable to the point where you just completely lose Christianity for the sake of not offending someone. And in this politically correct age, it is ever more apparent that as Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we need to stay awake. We need to stay awake to this. Second thing we see from this text that you can do to train yourself for godliness, which in turn protects you from the wolf, is immerse yourselves in the body. Immerse yourselves in the body. Again, this is written specifically to Timothy, but we can pull such good truth out of this. First Timothy 4, 13 through 15, he says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders lay their hands on you, practice these things, immerse yourselves in them so that you may see your, that all people may see your progress. Paul here tells Timothy to make sure he's devoting himself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. What do you think we're doing today? That's what we are doing today. We're sitting here gathered as the saints, the, the people of God, celebrating what Christ has done in our lives. We're worshiping him in song. We're sitting under the teaching of God's word. Christian, you are so much stronger when you are part of the body of Christ. Over and over and over, uh, it's been a, a, a difficult year in ministry, a lot of really hard things. And over and over, Dustin has told us, it is such a gift to have the body of believers around you. And the reason I encourage you with that is this. While things are good, you might not feel like you need anybody. But when things are bad, and I mean real bad, you won't be able to hold yourself up. You need the people of God to hold you up. One of the things I love is the times that we live in. It's amazing. Like there's, there are people that are a part of our church that are sick. They're at home. They're shut in. They cannot be here because of any number of reasons of sickness, and yet they still join us online. It's amazing to see people every Sunday interacting online, still able to be with us. I love that even though they're sitting there, they're still devoting themselves to this command that we see in the Scripture today, to the exhortation and the public reading of Scripture and the teaching. I am so thankful that the Lord has placed us in the time that he has placed us. But these people, man, I think as a church, we should, a lot of us might fall into the pit of despair, but there are people on our, on our website that every single Sunday, without a doubt, they are here, 
They're part of the body. They're giving themselves to this command. It's so beautiful that people can do that. Another thing, when you immerse yourself into the body of Christ, another thing we can do is just to be a sounding board for each other. As the church, you know, one of our roles is to see false teaching and call it out, but another one of those roles is just, look, I'm, I'm a human, I'm, I'm fallible, I'm foolish at times. I might say something from the pulpit that's just dumb. And it's wonderful when saints can gather around and correct those small, silly mistakes. I, I love the feeling when I have somebody who I know loves Jesus and I know they're out to edify me and they're out to edify the church when they pull me aside and say, hey man, you, you had this wrong. It's okay, we all get stuff wrong sometimes, but I just wanted to correct this. That is such a gift if you are truly out to pursue the real Jesus Christ. Now, I've also had people who came out with definitely the bad heart and they were crazy and they told me, I don't know if I should say this, they told me I hate Baptists. And I was like, tell me, pray tell, I am Baptist. Let me know what you mean by that but it's wonderful to be a part uh, of the body of believers so that, that those who are home can still feel like they're part. For, for those of us who are sitting in this room, we can correct each other and we can help each other, but it's also amazing to be part of the body of believers because we can encourage each other by each other's faith. I love hearing the stories of faithful people sitting in our chairs, of hearing how God is using them in the workplace, of hearing how God is on fire in their soul, and the fire of your faith, it ignites, it, it bursts the fire of my faith. We need each other. It's so encouraging to see this. You know, as the, the believers, we need to stop seeing the church as this club that we belong to. Where, where we go and we consume and we get what we want, the music we want and all that, and we need to come to it more like, this is a body that I belong to, a people that I belong to, and I have unique gifts and I have unique talents and I wanna bring that so that I can serve and I can love. We need to remember this, that if you're alone, if you're not immersed in the body, there is real weakness there. But why would we do any of this? Why would we saturate our minds in good teaching and in good doctrine? Why would we immerse ourselves in the word of God? Why would we train ourselves up for godliness? Why would we care that there are even wolves dressed in sheep's clothing? Why does any of this matter? Because we care because the lost are being deceived. We care because false teaching has swayed baby Christians toward shallow faith that they're in danger of being swept up by the enemy. We care because Christ, the true Christ, the only hope for people to have eternal life, he says that we should care about these things. If you don't realize it, there's an enormous amount at stake if we fall asleep on this matter. If we forget that there are false, false teachers we essentially, if we do nothing to protect people, we are just being, we're okay with people being led astray to eternal destruction. Verse nine says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is savior of all people, especially those who 
believe. This is why Christians work the way they do, why we strive the way we do, why we train the way we do, because our hope is set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, here's why it's important to talk about this message. Somebody might read that verse, that he's the savior of all people. And a false teacher would say that and say, see, there it is in the Bible. I told you, Jesus saves all people. So what do we have to worry about? You wanna know the problem with that? The rest of the entire Bible. Jesus does have a common grace. He does provide for all living beings, but that common grace is not an eternal salvation grace. It's a, a daily showing of God's kindness by providing food and shelter and medicine and all sorts of other common graces, but he has a special grace, a specific grace for those who would trust in him as their savior, which for us is the only way, for all people, it's the only way to eternal salvation. We know that Jesus is the only hope for people. And so we need to make sure that we're training ourselves up for godliness so that you and I, as the people of God, in our day can stand up against the attacks of the enemy through the false teachers that the enemy uses. If you, as a believer, are immersed in the body of Christ, if you're immersed in the word of Christ, if you're immersed by setting your hope on the living God, by growing in good doctrine that's connected from the head to the heart to the hands, then you will be a smoking gun in the hand of an almighty God as he's defeating the wolves in his church. So be warned, Christian. Be warned, the wolves are out there and they do draw people away from the faith. And we need to take that seriously. So train yourself. Train yourself in godliness and take heart in this. Set your hope in God and remember that God is always greater and that no matter what, he wins. Let's pray. Lord God, our prayer, <laughs> our prayer is that we would be aware of, of the reality of, of life, of the situation. Lord, I know this is not a feel-good message that we're all gonna walk out of here and cheer and jump and sing. But life is difficult. And you equip us for the difficulties of life. You train us in godliness. And so I pray for all of us here. Lord, that we would remember that the only reason that we can do any of this is because you have stepped out of heaven and you saved us in our wretched state. We had nothing good to give to you. If anything, if you didn't intervene, if you don't intervene, God, all of us will become false teachers because our hearts are so desperately wayward and you have a grace to fill us with your Holy Spirit to help us in the process of sanctification and make us more like you. So Lord, we love you. We pray like Timothy was, that we could be a beacon of light in our city where we do see people following after all sorts of different things and we can just be the loving hand of Christ to be there, being in the world but not of the world. So Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you guys would stand for worship.